0: Another election day is come and gone, and these days the next election cycle ramps up even before this week's winners are going to take the oath of office. Perpetual campaigning, yikes. This week's episode, Dedication in the World of Sports, goes to someone who spent a career in a sport where outcomes are decided by votes via judges' scorecards, sort of like votes and ballots this week that we saw with the elections. And the sport that I speak of is boxing. In the individual we dedicate episode 129 to is the Pittsburgh kid, light heavyweight champion, Billy Kahn. Kahn had one of the most interesting of careers in what was at the time in the 1930s and 1940s, the most popular of sports, which was boxing. Only baseball had as much or more popularity than boxing during that era. Kahn debuted as a professional boxer in 1934. And through the 30s and early 40s, he racked up an impressive record and set of wins against notable opponents. And in 1939, Kahn won the World Light Heavyweight Championship and successfully defended his title three times after he won it. And many sports fans of today, they don't understand how big boxing was during that era and how during one period in the late 1930s and early 1940s, the Pittsburgh area alone laid claim to five champions. So Kahn came up in one of boxing's epicenters at the time. Now here's some irony. When Joe Lewis came to the Steel City to fight in the mid-1930s, Kahn made a buck holding the spitbox for the Brown Bomber. It was the first time he ever saw the man with whom he would be linked forever in boxing history, which I'll get to in a second. So his ties to Joe Lewis are why global boxing fans still speak of Billy Kahn today. So, back in May of 1941, Kahn gave up his World Light Heavyweight title to challenge the World Heavyweight champ, Joe Lewis. And Khan attempted to become the first World Light Heavyweight champion in boxing history to win the World Heavyweight Championship when he and Lewis met on June 18th of that year. Now, Kahn tried to do so without going up in his weight, and that's nuts. The fight itself is legendary. Khan was easily winning the fight going into the 13th round, but then Khan tried to go for the knockout in the 13th, and instead he ended up being knocked out by Joe Lewis. 10 minutes after the fight, Khan told reporters, I lost my head and a million bucks. It's one of the most famous bouts in boxing history, what could have or should have been versus what actually was. Khan and Lewis, they fought again in an exhibition. And then came World War II. That called them both to the service. And then they fought a bout in Yankee Stadium, where Lewis again won by knockout. The third 1946 fight was the first televised World Heavyweight Championship bout ever. And as a result of that broadcast, it set a record at the time for the most seen World Heavyweight bout in history. Now, one of the best pieces of sports writing that you will ever read was a Sports Illustrated story on the life of Billy Kahn and his wife by the legendary sports writer Frank DeFord. The title of the story is The Boxer and the Blonde. You can read it online, and it is an example of great sports journalism. And it's also a great way to feel what boxing in Pittsburgh were once like. Now, Kahn and Lewis, they became friendly after their fights for years, because if nothing else, they were closely linked by shared history. Billy Kahn would often joke to Joe Lewis, hey Joe, why didn't you just let me have the title for six months? Lewis would reply, I let you have it for 12 rounds and you couldn't keep it. How could I let you have it for six months? It's a great comeback. Billy Kahn married a local girl whose dad was a retired pro baseball player, and that father-in-law of Kahn's had a fiery temper. A fight once broke out in the kitchen between Kahn and his father-in-law. Kahn punches his father-in-law in the head and broke his hand doing so, which resulted in postponing one of the fights with Joe Lewis. Years later, uh, whenever Joe Lewis saw Khan, he would usually begin the conversation with, and, and forgive my French here, but I wanted to capture the quote for you. Is your old father-in-law still beating the shit out of you? Like I said, Lewis and Khan enjoyed years of back and forth, both in the ring and out of the ring. Now, somebody uh, once asked Khan if he learned to fight in the streets. His response was no. It was a long time before he got to fight in the streets because he started fighting in the alleys. And Billy Kahn would tell his three sons, don't fight on the streets because you'll only find out who's good when it's too late. Now, by the way, if you're a movie buff, Billy Kahn is mentioned in a key part of the classic movie On the Waterfront. In that famous scene in the back of the cab, you know, I could have been a contender scene. Rod Steiger, who plays Marlon Brando's brother, reflects on Brando's character Terry's early promise as a boxer with the words, you could have been another Billy Kahn. Khan is in the Boxing Hall of Fame, of course, and his story, it should be remembered as a key piece of a golden era long ago, and for his links to one of the greatest, Joe Lewis. And Billy Khan spent his life in the same town, the same house, the same wife, the same manager. He said, if I drop dead tomorrow, I didn't miss anything. Well, we won't miss the opportunity to dedicate an episode of The Far Middle to the great Billy Khan. Boxing's a sport where the outcome is typically decided one of two ways. Either a knockout where the participants decide it, or by decision where the judges and their scores decide it. Now, if the judge is biased or isn't paying attention to what's going on in the ring, it can be a problem for the outcome of the bout and for, frankly, the credibility of the sport. And unfortunately, boxing has seen its share of that through the years. And scoring by judges is often subjective. But you always have the eye test and objective data to compare to the official decision in both boxing and in life. So Billy Conn and boxing, they make a connection to what's going to be the theme of episode 129, that of the scoreboard of the real world and the common sense eye test, those things versus the manufactured optics of the elite and expert classes. Everywhere you look these days, there seems to be a growing dichotomy between the two on issues having much more impact to many more people than a boxing title fight. And the gap between reality and optics is sitting in plain sight for all to see. So let's make some connections across that theme and see where they meander to. First connection will be going from Pittsburgh back in the 1930s and 1940s, Khan's urban hometown, to what is going on with our big cities today. We've spoken on this topic on the far middle for years. Uh, commentaries on my website, nickdelius.com, have been published on the theme and I dedicated a chapter of my book Precipice as well on the topic. but the scoreboard in reality they keep getting worse while the optics and rhetoric from the political elite class who run our largest cities keeps doubling down on effectively fiction. Our cities are sick and the decisions urban leadership are making on behalf of urban America it's making us sicker. Two recent examples with scoreboard math will illustrate San Francisco or what author Michael Schellenberger tagged as San Francisco, opened a 1.7-mile Central Subway this year. I'm not sure if you saw that. The cost came in at just under $2 billion, $1.95 billion, which, by the way, is 300% higher than what was budgeted and promised. It's seen less than 3,000 riders a day. Now, why so low with the ridership? Maybe crime or safety concerns but maybe also because the new line is hundreds of yards away from existing public transportation. Anyway, assume generously the 3,000 riders a day for every day of the year, and that's going to work out to about a million riders per year, which works out to about $2,000 a capital cost per rider per year. Getting everybody free ride hailing would have saved the taxpayer a pile and would have been faster and more enjoyable for the riders. But political leaders and bureaucrats in a city by the bay, they love those public transit boondoggles. How about the other side of the nation? Let's go to Rhode Island. Pawtucket is a town in Rhode Island. It's got a population of 75,000. It wants to build a soccer stadium that holds 10,500 spectators at a cost of $124 with about half of that coming from tax credits and subsidy. In other words, with about half of it being paid for by taxpayers. That makes sense as the top priority of Rhode Island and Pawtucket leaders and experts. Now we're told cities are the superior in the enlightened way by the experts painting the shiny optics of public transportation and sports stadiums. But our cities today, they can't pass the eye test or the smell test of common sense. And when you go to the scoreboard using clinically measured data and facts, it's spelling insolvency for cities in certain states. Think of Chicago and Illinois, for example. But city bankruptcies, they can't be bailed out by states without dragging states into bankruptcy. And no, by the way, states are not allowed to declare bankruptcy. It's not allowed under federal law, which means, you guessed it, a federal bailout will be the path with taxpayers left footing the bill. So who and what are you going to believe? Your eye test and the tally on the scoreboard or the veneer of the optics of the elites? Let's tie a connection from American urban decision-making in finances to global policy. Now, you don't get more global than energy and climate policy, right? The expert judges, they assured us that if we pour trillions of dollars into the energy transition, carbon use and carbon dioxide emissions would plummet, saving the globe. So cities like San Francisco and states like Rhode Island and nations like the United States, for that matter, they went off and continue to pour unfathomable amounts of money into what experts have ordained as the new economy for energy and transportation and so on. How is the scoreboard of fact turning out in comparison to those expert and elite assurances? Well, we've clearly spent and continue to spend the money, no doubt there. But oddly, there hasn't been the promised rapid drop in carbon use or carbon dioxide emissions, In fact, both are up since the march of trillions of dollars in unprecedented spending. That's right, energy consumption was up in 2022 and global CO2 emissions grew 12% faster than energy consumption grew, which when put to the eye test, that tells that all this wind and solar and battery economy is not zero carbon and zero emission, far from those in fact. And to add insult to injury, The trillions of dollars in spending didn't transform the grid or transportation network or manufacturing. Wind and solar are still less than two and a half percent of global energy consumption. And as much wood is burned in the U.S. today as was burned in 1885. Why? Because it's subsidized under the optics of it being zero carbon and zero emissions. Does that pass the smell or eye test constant listeners? Yet it's clear on global energy policy. The manufactured optics of the expert and elite classes say spend trillions of dollars to reduce carbon use and carbon dioxide emissions, but the scoreboard of data in the eye test both tell us the opposite is happening. The worst thing to do now would be to double down on the flawed approach and path. It's time to stop and reverse course. Let's connect that topic to a close cousin of a topic, which is how the administrative state And environmental groups, they warrant that climate change and global warming, those things are going to wreck economies. They're going to bring capital markets crashing down. You know, the argument along the lines of there is a huge economic rationale to tackling climate change. You hear that from the president, the Fed, the United Nations, the Treasury Secretary, the climate czar, and Hollywood elites. They all lecture along that line. That's the biased and subjective judging of those self-proclaimed experts Who assure us that they just know that to be true. Well, how does that contrast to the actual tallied metrics? What do the data say? Not surprisingly, they say the exact opposite of what the experts are lecturing. So check out the following. First, since 1950, U.S. real GDP, it's grown 800% at the same time the carbon dioxide emissions have risen significantly. So we've seen decades of actual history looking backward rising CO2 hasn't wrecked economies, it's grown economies. And if you take a dozen peer-reviewed estimates of how GDP is projected to decline with global warming from climate change, the consensus comes in at less than 0.5% of GDP lost for the 2.2 degrees of warming experienced. Less than 0.5% is noise compared to 800% actual GDP growth. Take an even higher level look at the scoreboard. Since 1900, the continental United States warmed about two degrees. Meanwhile, over the same time period, U.S. population quadrupled. Life expectancy went from 48 years to 79 years. Economic activity per capita went up 700%. Scoreboard and the eye test, they both tell us those two degrees of warming were extremely beneficial, not harmful. Now, even the White House objectively is saying the same thing. It ran scenarios for debt-to-GDP for the net-zero-by-2075 scenario and for the the high-emission-the-world-ends scenario. The two results were debt-to-GDP of just over 111% and just under 113%, respectively. Again, that spread is noise with no appreciable differences in public finances under two extreme climate and CO2 emission scenarios. That's the White House's own analysis to reiterate. So based on the scorecard, ask yourself what passes the eye and the smell tests. That climate change and global warming are the biggest threats to the U.S. economy, or that they pale in comparison to things like China, nuclear proliferation, technology running amok, banking failures, and so on. It's the elite optics versus real-world scoring, constant listeners. Yes, their optics and our common-sense reality quite the contrast. We can make a connection on that to the cost of food and food inflation, not just in the United States, but all over the world. Same dynamic at work here. And like we would be doing all episode, let's go to the scoreboard. In the U.K., food prices are up over 17 percent over 2023. And the last time I looked uh, with the data there, it was using early summer data. France, 14 percent food price inflation. Japan, 9 percent. So not as high as France and the U.K., but food inflation looks like it's just getting started in Japan, so it might catch up to those other two before you know it. And in the United States, food inflation sits just under 5%, but that's double the rate of target inflation set by the Fed. What's causing the food inflation we just saw on that quick scoreboard tour? Government, regulation, and policy are. Think about it. What would you expect happens to food prices when the following are all occurring simultaneously? First. People, through policy, are either forbidden to work or they're driven to not work, which reduces labor participation and increases labor costs. Government, it spends massively, making all inputs scarce and squeezing out private sector activity, including agriculture. Farmland is lost to environmental regulations like that for wetlands, and farmland is also repurposed for things like solar projects that receive massive tax credits. Crops, they get redirected from animal feed and human consumption markets and into subsidized energy markets like that for ethanol. So we're putting corn in our gas tanks instead of on our dinner plates due to EPA regulations. The cost of energy goes up when you have climate policies as low-cost energy sources are penalized by environmentalists and by government. And the cost of transportation goes up because fuel costs have spiked. The cost of fertilizer goes up because it uses carbon fuels as feedstocks. So if the cost of those carbon fuels increase, so does the cost of fertilizer. In global supply chains, they become more brittle, and they often break due to government tearing them down and trying to rebuild each link in an ideologically pure manner consistent with the left. And then last but not least, you got interest rates. They skyrocket in the attempt to try to tame inflation, and that raises the cost of doing business for agriculture. Now, I could go on, but you start to get the picture. The food cost inflation gripping the world was self-inflicted. But that's not what the experts and elites paint optically for us. No, there we get a very creative fiction as an explanation. And I could explain it, but the ECB president, so the president of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, she said it best. Quote, Adverse weather conditions in light of the unfolding climate crisis may push up food prices. End quote. What moxie with such optics? Create the problem of food inflation with climate policies and all that come with them, and then blame the inevitable food inflation on climate. Wow. I just pointed to rising interest rates as one of the many root drivers of food inflation. Let's use that to connect to another elite optics versus common sense scoreboard issue. How people feel about the US economy these days. So first, the magical optics from places like the White House. The economy is booming, happy times are here, and Americans, they're doing just great. But what do the facts on the scoreboard say? How do Americans view their economic condition under the eye test? Not so good, I'm afraid. A Quinnipiac poll two months ago or so found that 60 percent of voters disapprove of the president's handling of the economy and only 35 percent approve of his handling of the economy. So why do voters give a thumbs down on economy via the eye and smell test? Back to scoreboard, constant listeners, and interest rates and inflation in particular. Federal fund rates, which set interest rates and borrowing costs for all of us, they've gone up five points in 18 months. That's a rapid spike in a very short period of time. And that makes a mortgage, a car loan, college loans, and business loans all much more expensive. Why did interest rates go up? because inflation's raged everywhere and is on the brink of running out of control for all the same root cause reasons we listed when discussing food inflation. So if the cost of life, let's say, is going up due to inflation more than your wages, and there's no confidence the end of the problem is near or the problem is solved, you're not gonna feel good about the economy, hence the poll results. Again, another example of how scoreboard of facts plus common sense eye test Those things betray the fiction of elite and expert optics of fluff. You know, speaking of rising interest rates, there's a borrower out there in worse shape and getting hit harder than you and I, believe it or not. It's called the federal government. And that's what happens when your credit card balance exceeds 33 trillion and rates are rising. Creates a bit of a squeeze. But how much of a squeeze? Well, it depends on whether you follow the elite window dressing optics or the actual score. Let's start with the optics of window dressing. The Federal Reserve, the White House, President Trump, President Biden, and Ivy League economists, they all agree on the topic. And how many times can you state that sentence? Now, what they agree on is that this nation does not have a debt, a deficit, or a fiscal crisis problem. We can just keep spending, we should keep rates low, and we can just keep on printing more money. Things are great, we hold the fiat currency, why worry? That's not just window dressing. That's desperate window dressing. Let's jump to the score sheet to see why it's desperate. Debt north of $33 trillion. Debt to GDP over 120%. Annual deficits starting to approach $2 trillion during a time when unemployment is low, by the way. Rates rising dizzingly along with those rising rates. The service cost of all that debt going up lockstep with the higher rates. Between 2013 and 2022, total annual federal spending rose almost 70%. That's more than three times the growth of population plus inflation. State spending wasn't much better. Over that time period, it's up over 50%. Think about those. When government grows faster than the rate of population plus inflation growth, the people paying for the spending, the taxpayers, they can't keep up. You hit a wall without course correction. And worse, at some point, you've passed the point where a course correction is possible. The hole's just too deep to pull out of. The scorecard is starting to blink in a way that we may already be past that point. In the eye and smell tests, they're warning that that might be the case as well. Credit ratings firm Fitch recently downgraded U.S. debt this summer. And of course, the experts and elites, they nervously laughed it off as meaningless. Fitch follows the score and issues a downgrade. Our leaders, undeterred, they ignore another data point and they keep spending away. Even though they must agree such spending and fiscal erosion is unsustainable, they pretend it can go on indefinitely. You know, all these connections of optic pretending by the elite and experts, it brings to mind a connection to the Washington DC class and getting it wrong on Russia and Putin. Democrats got it wrong. Republicans got it wrong. Trump got it wrong. Biden got it wrong. And they also got him wrong, as in Russia and Putin, respectively. Why? Well, our leaders, they followed experts and elites blindly, except for one leader in the 1970s who didn't trust those elites and experts, because maybe he was a bit paranoid. Perhaps that wasn't too bad of a thing until it got way out of hand. I speak, of course, of Richard Nixon. And in the 1990s, Nixon returned from a trip from Russia And he engaged in a dialogue with then-President Clinton. Nixon was warning Clinton of how Ukraine, in particular, was explosive and could brew into a major calamity and how Russia will eventually resort to a strong man or strong woman. Now, besides being eerily prescient, Nixon made a point to Clinton about how the best decisions Nixon made in hindsight as president, they were made in spite of what the expert and elite class told him to do. And he said in a letter to Clinton, quote, remember that foreign service officers get to the top by not getting into trouble. They are therefore more interested in covering their asses than in protecting yours. End quote. Nixon was extremely articulate in that statement by highlighting the danger of elite and expert optics painting over reality and the real score. President Nixon, he nailed it. As president in the 1960s and 1970s and is a pen pal advisor to President Clinton in the 1990s. Remember when our leaders, by the way, would always band together to do what was in the best interest of the country? Political party affiliation aside, boy, I miss those days, don't you? Well, those days, unfortunately, they are not now, as our next connection demonstrates. And we're going to talk about something that's much more recent than Nixon in the 1960s and 1970s and Clinton in the 1990s. Our central intelligence agency, CIA, it's about as expert class as you can get, right? Well, the CIA, it seems, is more info comes to light, may have been much more interested in pushing a desired set of optics when it came to COVID origins than what the substantive score was saying. A whistleblower within the CIA itself is alleging that the agency rigged a report on the origins of COVID-19 to clear China's name. You heard that right. The whistleblower is saying that out of a seven-person team to assess COVID origin within the CIA, six of the seven thought evidence indicated it came from a Chinese lab leak. Only one of the seven, who happened, by the way, to be the most senior person of the seven-member team, thought it came through animals, or what is technically termed zoonosis. The final report said the source of COVID was uncertain, so it didn't call out the lab leak or China. And the whistleblower says the other six members of the team were financially rewarded to stand down on the lab leak view. This is a textbook case of what we've been discussing this entire episode. Experts and elites ignoring the score and ignoring the facts and ignoring the data, so to speak, and instead pushing a favored narrative, whatever that might be, and for whatever reasons. But it won't be for the aim of calling it like it is based on what the scoreboard says. Truth ends up getting demoted and it's the first casualty. This accusation um, by the whistleblower, it mirrors what we now know was going on with Chinese meddling in the 2020 presidential election. Chinese state controlled actors were using social media to take aim at Trump's reelection prospects since Trump at the time was clearly anti-China. And from the CCP's point of view, the Chinese Communist Party's point of view back then, the best outcome for the election was a Biden victory. I'm not sure how the CCP feels about that now. Interestingly, an ombudsman analyzing this issue at the CIA found that China analysts were hesitant to assess Chinese actions as undue influence or interference because they tend to disagree with the administration's policies. I just quoted an excerpt from that ombudsman report. The administration, in this case, of course, being the, uh, the Trump administration, So the ombudsman concluded there were strong efforts within the intelligence community to suppress the view that China was working against a Trump re-election victory. And by the way, if this all bothers you regarding our intelligence community of experts and elites, it will further frustrate you to consider most of these people have jobs and pensions for life, no matter how badly they screw up or how incompetent they are. There simply is no accountability as the common person thinks of it, or as the scoreboard or smell test would indicate there should be. Let's head down the home stretch of episode 129, our meandering through a series of connections that contrast the optics of the elites and the experts to the real world scoreboard and eye test of the common person. Let's connect to the Bible. And I admit I'm not an expert on the Bible but a verse from which that I do know is found on the wall of the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. It's from John 8.32. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, most of us are familiar with that one, I suppose. But too bad, so many of our elites and experts refuse to live up to it. And if our leaders and their advisors refuse to follow truth, and instead cling to those pretend optics, America loses the geopolitical game. And speaking of geopolitics and games, let's close with a final connection and a happy birthday today, November 8th, to Milton Bradley. The game legend was born this day in 1836. Three of my favorite Milton Bradley games through the years were Battleship as a kid, Stratego as a tweener, and Axis and Allies as a teen. And someday soon, I'll give you my all-time top 10 ranking of board games. Those three, they might all end up making the cut. But for now, That's all till next week.